Hi everyone, welcome back to Adherent Apologetics. As always, we are brought to you by you with your support on patreon.com slash adherentapologetics. Today I'm joined by Eli Ayala. He's the host of Revealed Apologetics, a great apologetics channel from a presuppositional position. Uh, Eli, welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, awesome. So just to give you guys a little bit of like a rundown of what we're going to be doing is we're just going to be talking about presuppositional apologetics. So the first part, we're just going to talk about like what precept is, uh, why Eli is a presuppositionalist, and then we'll kind of dive into some objections. And in the last like 10 minutes or so, we'll hit some live questions if there's anything. Um, so just to begin, Eli, could you talk a little bit like if someone doesn't know who you are, can you talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do? Uh, well, as you said before, my name is Eli Ayala. I am a Christian apologist, uh, YouTuber, I suppose, kind of like <laughs> yourself. And uh, I also teach at a Christian private school. So I teach the Bible classes uh, at the school that I'm currently at. And prior to that, I, I worked at a, uh, a different school in which I taught for over around 10 years, uh, Bible, theology, uh, Christian apologetics for high school seniors. And um, I grew up on Long Island, New York, and this is where I currently live. And I'm just you know, doing what, doing what I'm doing. I have a wife, I have three kids and, um, you know, living it up, man. <laughs> the long Island life. It's fun to have Northeastern people on the show. Um, it's, always, <laughs> right. it's a different breed than like the South than what I'm we are an to. interesting bunch. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I'm curious, like just to start off, can you talk a bit about like what got you interested in like maybe apologetics and specifically like presuppositional apologetics, like as a whole? Mm -hmm. Well, I've always been an inquisitive person. So I, I did grow up in church um, and um, I grew up in a, in a Spanish Pentecostal church and uh, I was always interested in the Bible uh, around the table. When we had family gatherings, we'd always talk about the things of the Lord. And I was always very inquisitive, wondering why we believe what we believe and, um, you know, things like that. And then um, as I went into my first couple of semesters at community college, I took a course called Literature of the Bible. Um, where it was supposed to be a course literally about the literature of the Bible. Um, but instead, the professor um, really took some time trying to show why he thought the Bible was false. And they would spend like the first half hour talking about, you know, Bible contradictions and things like that. And because I grew up in church, um, kind of in my my little bubble, um, I wasn't aware of those things. And so it really drove me to look into the deeper foundations for my faith and why I believe uh, what I believe. And so I kind of did a little experiment. I pretended to be an atheist. Um, and uh, try to come up with some of the best arguments that I can think of and, and what others have thought of with regards to evidence against the Christian faith. And then I kind of, you know, figured to myself, you know, Christians have been around for the past 2000 years. Surely someone has developed a response to some of these. And so when I was opened up to the world of apologetics, I found that um, not only um, were the objections that my professor brought up literally addressed thousands of times and is not even taken seriously in scholarship. Mm -hmm. uh, it opened up a whole new world in terms of just the intellectual side of the Christian faith. And so that got me into apologetics along with some other things, but that was kind of the main thing that really got me intentional about doing it. So I'm curious, like uh, you talk about like entering like this world of apologetics, so, uh, Christian philosophy, theology, there's so much there. It's amazing. Uh, every time I read a book or talk to someone, I'm like, wow, there's just so much that I didn't know existed regarding like why Christians believe what they believe. But like, who were you like diving into uh, when you first got into like this big apologetics questions? Well, my first dive into apologetics was like on the internet. And so when you type in apologetics, 99.9% .9 of what will pop up is the first, the first website or the first, the second is CARM, mm. Christian Apologetics Research Ministry, which is headed um, by uh, Matt Slick, who is now uh, a friend of mine, which is very interesting because um, I got into apologetics consuming CARM articles and listening to the CARM podcast. I never thought I, I would actually uh, get to meet Matt Slick and we talk all the time and he's been a great friend. So it's kind of cool to go from, you know, studying on that website and kind of looking into the basics of apologetics and then finally getting to meet the guy, which I thought was was pretty cool. Um, but I was um, listening to a lot of Matt Slick and it was not until um, my brother-in-law needed my iPod to MC a wedding. Because the MC, the DJ, I think, kind of backed out at the last second or something, if I remember correctly. And so he tried to save his friend and, uh, you know, play music off the iPod, you know, back in the day when iPods first came out. And so he borrowed my iPod and he put all of his content on there. And mm -hmm. when he gave the iPod back, um, he didn't take his stuff off. So I'm like flipping through this. I'm like, who's 
who's William Lane Craig? You know, who's this guy? <laughs> this guy sounds weird, you know, giving premises and steps and <laughs> trying to be Log- all logical. Logic and Christianity. <laughs> That's right. Like, who is this dude? And, um, I started listening to a lot of William Lane Craig and like the stuff from reasonable faith. I consumed the living daylights out of that stuff. Um, and I still do. I really do uh, love Dr. Craig's work and uh, what they're doing over there at reasonable faith. But a part of what was in my iPod as a result of my brother-in-law borrowing it was a debate between Greg Bonson and Gordon Stein. And when I listened to that debate, after having listened to countless debates by Dr. Craig and, and others, um, which I thought they, by the way, they did brilliant and they were awesome and and just so um, intelligent and erudite and knowledgeable about philosophy, science and things like that. When I first heard the Greg Bonson, Gordon Stein debate, I, I said to myself, this is different. <laughs> this is very different. It was philosophically rigorous, but it was relentlessly biblical. Hmm. There was no shrinking down of the target i mean this guy was saying the christian worldview there was there was in the cross-examination i think gordon stein the atheist asked greg bonson mathematics is it is it uh theistic or non-theistic and Mm. you know uh bonson was like theistic and then he corrected himself christian theistic (laughs) and he argued so um clearly and powerfully that the christian worldview is what gave things like mathematics meaning Mm. is what gave logic a context in which even something like logic would make sense. And so I never saw someone debate the Christian position with such commitment to the entirety of the Christian worldview. A lot of other people, they'll kind of take pieces. They don't want to talk about this thing over here because well, we'll talk about inerrancy later. You know, like this guy was bringing the entire Christian worldview to bear upon the unbeliever. And I thought that was so different. And as I reflected upon that, I, I came to be convinced that surely this is the biblical way to do it. Um, you know, and so it was through listening to Dr. Bonson, a lot of his lectures and things like that, that really got me into two things. Number one, presuppositional apologetics is biblical. And number two, it's flipping powerful when used correctly. There are a lot of people who do all sorts of crazy stuff. And, you know, we can talk about those guys if you want, you know, the crazies online. But when it's used appropriately along and uh, tethered with gentleness and respect, as First Peter 3.15 says, then I think it becomes a very powerful apologetic um, that presents really the force and thrust of the Christian worldview um, in a way that I think the other methodologies don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot there that I'd love to dive into as we keep on going. But one thing I do know about you is, Sometimes you can see presuppositionalists who are very hesitant to use any sort of like natural theology in their arguments in terms of like a cosmological or teleological or all these different arguments. But I know you will use them as well. Obviously, you see presuppositional apologetics is like the argument, um, as you just talked about here. Like, what do you think the role of the other arguments are when like you're doing your job as an apologist, making the case for uh, the existence of God and Christian theism? Yeah. Well, first, we want to make a distinction between presuppositional methodology and presuppositional argumentation. Mm -hmm. So like presuppositionalism isn't an argument. It's a method. And because it's a method, we will argue in a certain way. You see Mm -hmm. how that works? So when we follow the presuppositional methodology and, and the methodology kind of dictates from Scripture that God is really the foundation of everything, then we seek to argue with the unbeliever in a way that takes that into account. We try to argue in a way pardon, that our method of reasoning and form of argumentation takes into account the necessity of God to even engage in those things. And so uh, we take very seriously um, kind of the biblical mandate to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Mm -hmm. And that includes the thoughts that involve the reasoning process. And so we try our best to argue in a way that does not compromise principles of scripture with regards to the lordship of Christ, uh, with regards to what God says um, as to the nature of unbelief and what the unbeliever knows in his heart of hearts, we try to take all those things into consideration so that the form of argumentation is consistent with the theology, the biblical theology that undergirds it. And so I would say presuppositional methodology is a biblical methodology and seeks to argue in a way that is consistent with the Bible. Now, that being said, what flows from that is this argument, which now is, uh, we're not using biblical terms, we're using philosophical terms now because we need to speak the language of the philosophers if we're going to engage the philosopher. Um, what comes out of a presuppositional mindset and a presuppositional form of argumentation is something like a transcendental argument, 
where we argue for uh, the truth of the Christian worldview for, uh, by the impossibility of the contrary. Um, and, and because we argue that way, it is a, an aggressive argument because it's all encompassing, right? It's saying that the Christian worldview is the only uh, grounding for truth, intelligibility, and cogency, and things like that. And all of the worldviews, you know, are not up to snuff with regards to being able to do that in the same way Christianity uh, does. That being said, um, when we argue that way, that does not mean that we do not use evidences or other arguments. In fact, Cornelius Van Til did not reject the traditional proofs, as we call them necessarily. Um, what he did was he rejected the way in which they were presented. Namely, um, they were often presented with the assumption in the methodology of neutrality and autonomy. Okay. So, um, neutrality and autonomy are these twin things that, um, presuppositionalists argue against when we're engaging in a biblically faithful apologetic, we do not want to pretend that we can be neutral observers and objectively just follow the evidence where it leads. Because the reality is everyone has a worldview and everyone interprets the facts the way that they do because it's informed by their worldview convictions. And so the Christian committed to Christ will say, listen, I have a Christian worldview. Everything within my worldview is interpreted in the lens of God's revelation. But guess what? You have a worldview too. And your worldview affects how you interpret it. So let's just get past all of this talking past each other and just admit our bias at the at the at the beginning. You see, mm -hmm. now bias is not always a bad thing. You know, uh, for example, if a Jew who survived the Holocaust wrote about his experiences in the Holocaust, is that going to be a bias account? Well, you bet. But that doesn't mean it's false. You see, what the Christian wants to do is, I have my bias, you have your bias, but who's bias, so to speak, actually reflects reality, which one actually provides a context out of which everything else makes sense. And so we would argue in that way. That's why we're called presuppositionalists, because we place a great emphasis on the nature and uh, impact of presuppositions, that, that what it has with regards to how we interpret things. Now, evidence, I would, I would agree with uh, Dr. Scott Oliphant over there at Westminster Theological Seminary, that he says that presuppositionalists are eminently evidentialist or evidential, sorry. Uh, we want to make a distinction between the use of evidence and evidentialism as a methodology. Mm -hmm. um, we are eminently evidential in that we are the ones who are saying that literally everything is evidence for God. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, so if everything is evidence for God, then I can use any item of human experience as a starting point in my discussion with the unbeliever. Now, the reason why that gets kind of... Um, uh, kind of tossed to the side in popular presuppositional discourse is, is because most presuppositionalists we observe online come from more of the lay perspective and they don't understand necessarily how all of these things fit together. Okay. And their access point, their access point to presuppositionalism is either by watching Greg Bonson's debate with Gordon Stein, which places great emphasis on logic. And so if that's their starting point, they're gonna be arguing that way. They're gonna to try to emulate that because look, it was effective in that debate and I wanna learn how to do it in that same way. Mm -hmm. Or they'll watch a Saiten Bruggenkate who uses presuppositionalism in his particular way, you see? And so those are the access points. It's kind of like, it's kind of like Molinism. If you understand the discussions on Molinism, one of the big pet peeves of the Calvinist against Molinism is, is that it seems to be too philosophical and not very biblical. You hear this stuff all the time, right? Yeah. And, and I'm, not, I'm not saying that it's unbiblical or, or biblical at all. I know there are people who defend it from different perspectives. But I always wondered, and there's a connection here, um, I always wondered why, are Molin, why do Molinists tend to be more philosophical than quote, biblical in the sense that they're doing exegesis to derive their view. Now, some people try to do that. That's fine. But why do they tend to be um, more philosophical? Well, I came to, to learn, and I also mentioned this too when I had a discussion with Dr. Kirk McGregor, who is a, a noted Molinist uh, theologian, that the access point to Molinism is not through Molina's biblical defenses of Molinism. He has biblical defenses. But much of his biblical defenses for Molinism are not translated into the English language. And so the access point to Molinism is going to be through two philosophical giants of our day, Al Plantinga and William Lane Craig, you see? And so when you hear Molinistic arguments, they tend to be very philosophical because that's their access point. It's not to say that it's not biblical. People can make biblical arguments, but that's the access point. So you have people latching onto that and that becomes the discourse in that realm. Same thing with presuppositionalism. If your access point is going to be from the Bonson debate 
and Saiten Brugenkate and Jeff Durbin, then it's going to take a, a certain flavor when you emulate that. You have to understand that presuppositionalists tend to focus on the areas of their, of their expertise. Bonson was an expert in epistemology. And so his methodology reflected this, how do you know, what are the foundations for knowledge? Um, but there is much more to emphasize in presuppositional thought. One point that's underemphasized is the issue of the one and the many, this, mm -hmm. this philosophical issue of the one and the many and how the Trinity kind of plays a role in that. Bonson didn't really speak that much on it because he focused on his areas of expertise, you see. So that's why I think presuppositionalism takes a lot of the flavor that it does like in the online community and things like that. Yeah, there's many different uh, flavors, I guess you could say, of presuppositional apologetics. So uh, you talked about it a little bit, but like as you developed your kind of like presuppositional methodology, like uh, could you kind of just like walk through it a little bit, like for someone who doesn't understand like kind of how your line of thinking works regarding presuppositional apologetics? Can you just like walk through that for a couple minutes? Yeah, um, something really helped me in understanding how I should go about apologetics. And I think it's very some, something simple that people could understand. I have a friend, uh, he's an OPC pastor, uh, Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He, his name is uh, Bill Shishko, okay? He's a retired minister. And he was friends with um, with Cornelius Van Til. As a matter of fact, I was able to con, I was able to con him, con out of him an autographed copy of Defense of the Faith. <laughs> <laughs> so nice. I have, I have it somewhere here. You know, I, sometimes, yeah, it's a win-win. I didn't really con him. He was so generous. <laughs> um, but oftentimes when I would meet with my friend, uh, Pastor Shishko, I would ask questions about what kind of person Van Til was. And he said something very interesting to me that really set kind of the context as to how I should engage in apologetics. Now, here you have Cornelius Van Til, an intellectual giant. I mean, he was an intellectual powerhouse. It does, even if you don't agree with him. I mean, the guy was was a very, very influential thinker, mm -hmm. a very, very sharp guy. Okay, and so I hear I'm thinking that Pastor Shishko is going to tell me something really profound about you know how Van Til looked at apologetics and how he kind of approached this topic. And I asked him, "What do you think was the most Im important thing to Van Til with regards to um, apologetics and life and worldview?" And he said that if I could describe Van Til in one sentence, I would describe Van Til as a child who is living in his father's world. Now, that was a very interesting statement because as intelligent as he was, all the books and the papers and the syllabi that he wrote, for Van Til, when you remove all of the um, confusing terminology and all these concepts, for Van Til, he was just committed to living consistently with the notion that this is God's world. And if we're believers who just in a simple fashion believe the word of God, our desire is not to get lost in the philosophical uh, details and things like it's to believe God's word. And he believed whether someone agrees or not, he believed that the approach of apologetics that he was promoting was an outflow of believing God's word, what it says about God, what it says about what we know about God, mm -hmm. what it says about the fact that we're all made in the image of God, what it says about the fact that even the unbeliever in some profound way has a knowledge of God that leaves him without excuse. Van Til's just like, if that's what the word of God says, if that's what my father says, I believe it. And mm -hmm. so presuppositional apologetics is just an apologetic methodology that takes seriously what God has said. And as a faithful, as a child, believing his father, living in his father's world, we seek to defend the faith in a way that takes into consideration what God has told us about ourselves, about the unbeliever, and about how we should interpret the world. Mm. Thank you. So obviously there's a lot of people who have issues with presuppositional apologetics. Yes. Uh, maybe it's in the, it can be in the Christian community, it can be outside of the Christian community. There's a lot of people that have, that would have a bone to pick with you uh, for being a presuppositional apologist. By what standard? By what standard? <laughs> There you go. Classic precept right there. Uh, so I love it. Um, so like, why do you think there's such a, like a, almost like a negative reaction to like presuppositional apologetics? Like, and then how do you like kind of respond, respond to the criticism? Um, and obviously this can come from the Christian community and outside of the Christian community. Hmm. Well, I think there are a couple of reasons why uh, precept gets a negative reaction from others. And, and I apologize off the, the, you know, in front, I, I apologize right at the start if I don't mention the reason why someone who's listening hates it. <laughs> I'm sure there's a reason that uh, that I'll mention. If you don't get the reason I hate it, then I'm that, gonna like that's right. Stream. That's right. No, I'm just kidding. I don't hate free stuff. So, <laughs> all right. So, um, I think first there is a theological reason. Okay. Uh, with regards to the unbeliever, I think presuppositional methodology really presses upon the unbeliever his need for God. 
and his complete and utter impotence of his unbelieving worldview uh, to sufficiently ground anything. And so to say to the unbeliever that without my God, you can't ground anything, that sounds kind of arrogant. And so people tend to not like that approach. Like I said at the beginning, it can come across as very um, aggressive. I also think that some people have a problem with presuppositionalism because of its sloganeering, sloganeering, that a lot of people who do presup online are content with simply, pardon, they're content with simply spitting out Vantillian or Bonsinian slogans without going deeper and explaining their position clearly enough. So for example, you know, while saying by what standard, right? Uh, that doesn't mean the argumentation is over, right? We need to actually engage with the unbeliever's response in, in a meaningful fashion. By what standard is a valid question, but more needs to be said. You can't just watch a, a Jeff Durbin video and then repeat what standard as though, you know, that's all you need to do. Secondly, I think simply stating that Christianity is true by the impossibility of the contrary doesn't make it so. Okay. In fact, simply stating that Christianity is true by the impossibility of the contrary is not even the argument. There needs to be meaningful argumentation to demonstrate that how this is the case. And, and this is what Bonson would have done. That's why Bonson calls it what he called the transcendental argument. It is an argument. Um, but people kind of confuse asserting the truth of Christianity with arguing for the truth of Christianity. You, you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So uh, so this will often annoy people because we'll just say these slogans and number one, it's aggressive. Number two, it comes off as arrogant. And number three, you're not giving me any more. You, you know, well, tell me how this is the case. Oh, you're suppressing the truth. It's like, okay, but show me, show me. And I think um, there needs to be a little more um, work in that regard. And you'll be surprised. A lot of people who think they know what presuppositional apologetics is because they learn it from watching YouTube videos, they'll be surprised that it's much more richer when you take the time to, A, read Van Til's work, if you can, it can be confusing, um, and Bonson, when you read his work or you listen to his lectures and he actually unpacks a lot of these things that you hear thrown out there on the internet, but there's actually so much more depth there. So I think a lot of people are annoyed at, at Precept because of the sloganeering. And the lastly is personality. I think, unfortunately, in my experience, and I know others can resonate with this, presuppers, at least in the popular arena, <laughs> can come across really arrogant and difficult to interact with. Mm. Okay. This is an interesting observation for me, since I think it evinces kind of a, a hypocrisy that biblical apologists should be aware of avoiding. Okay. How can you, I want you to listen to this, how can you claim to be utilizing a biblical apologetic? while employing it in an unbiblical fashion, namely being arrogant, being disrespectful to your opponent. I mean, 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 25 says, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, be able to teach and be patient, enduring evil. He must gently reprove those who oppose him in the hope that God may grant repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And don't give me that garbage of, well, Jesus flipped over tables. Stop it, okay? That people try to use the holy indignation argument in favor of why they're being jerks to the unbeliever, right? I, I get it. There's a context for us to be firm. There's a context for us to be more straightforward. But at the same time, we are ultimately called to um, defend the faith with gentleness and respect. And if your argument is strong and powerful, you don't need to be disrespectful. Let the other person do that. Let your character be an apologetic along with your quote, your transcendental argument, right? How much, how much more powerful is a transcendental argument when it is effectively stated, effectively defended, coupled with an attitude that reflects the God whom you serve? I think that makes your apologetic more robust, more, more well-rounded, and um, you are able then to truly engage in apologetic discourse in a way that's honoring to God. Mm, yeah, it's really good. Uh, so you just talked a lot about this. Um, this kind of like online presuppositional apologist which sometimes you can get versus like what you'll see in like the literature whether it's like a van taylor or bonson uh, you talked about like uh the slogans that can just come up in the online realm and the hypocrisy that um maybe accused of presuppositional apologetics but like is there anything else where you're like uh when you look at presup uh in the literature people get this wrong about precept because they only see this online like do you see other misconceptions uh regarding presuppositional apologetics are you're asking what do I see other than what I've mentioned that yeah. people get wrong about presupposition yeah, yeah, apologetics? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, well, in terms of criticizing the critics, okay, I think critics don't understand what presuppositionalism 
is the presuppositional argument, you know, if we're going to distinguish methodology argument, what it's trying to say. Um, there's one, one way I know someone doesn't understand it. Ready? Christianity is true by the impossibility of the contrary, and here's why. And then you engage in your argument. And then they'll say, well, you're just making an assertion. No, it's an argument. Look, you can't account for anything. Christianity can. Let's talk about it. Mm -hmm. Well, you're just making an assertion. No, this is how you're going to interact. If I think Christianity provides the necessary preconditions for intelligible experience and your mm -hmm. world, you can disprove what I'm saying by showing me that your world, your mm -hmm. world, your world, you can do it. You would disprove the Christian, uh, the transcendental argument if you can ground knowledge, intelligibility, and even the argument you're making in your own worldview. Mm. Okay. Now, even that is not the whole picture, though, because the ability of, of me to point out inconsistencies within your worldview doesn't automatically demonstrate the truth of mine. And so I'm going to have to do some legwork in terms of um, demonstrating that the Christian metaphysic, the Christian epistemology, the Christian ethic, the Christian worldview perspective actually, in fact, grounds uh, the necessary, well, provides those necessary preconditions for intelligible experience, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to have to do that twofold kind of you got the internal critique and then the positive presentation as to why Christianity does, in fact, do what we as presuppositionalists claim that it does. Mm. So uh, I think let's just go into some objections to precept here. Uh, sure. I think one of the most common things you'll run into is that, uh, you know, you just kind of ran into your little theistic worldview over here. You know, like there's like uh, Islam and Judaism, like why Christianity? Like why presuppose Christianity over like a different worldview. I think it's probably one of the more common objections you'd get to your view. Well, when we say why presuppose it, uh, again, the question, uh, uh, it's not, I'm not asking you to presuppose Christian truth. Mm -hmm. the, Christ, the, the presuppositional and biblical position is that you know the God I'm speaking of. Mm. I'm not asking you to do it. I'm, I'm telling you, you are doing it, and I want to draw that reality out when we interact with each other. Right. Part of the presuppositional task is to demonstrate that actually the unbeliever has to presuppose Christian categories even to argue against it. And that's bet that's literally what a, a transcendental argument seeks to do. You, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So um, so it's not that you're kind of this neutral observer standing in the back here and I'm just giving you an option to choose. No, I'm saying no, the, the, in a very profound way. And, and even if it's the case that I'm not really sure how to explain it, according to biblical revelation, there is a knowledge that all men have that is sufficient for their condemnation. Now, what in what way does the unbeliever know? You know what? That's a great question to explore. I, I might be able to kind of speculate, and there's some biblical data there that we could explore. But if from the Christian perspective, from the Christian worldview perspective, from the scriptural perspective, there is a knowledge of God that you all have. You, you see what I'm saying? And mm -hmm. me as an apologist, one of my oh, – I just activated Siri because I said uh, – <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, Siri's a presuppositionalist, probably. See, she's like, you're presupposing my existence and calling upon <laughs> my name. <laughs> um, well, well, basically, um, we're not we're not neutral bystanders. What the the presuppositionalist is saying is that I'm not asking you to to presuppose the Christian worldview. I'm saying you are presupposing Christian truth, even when you're arguing against it. And here's why: mm. it's not enough to just say that. You now have to demonstrate that throughout the course of the interaction. Mm. Yeah, I think the here's why is something that a lot of people will miss who. Uh, have issues with presuppositionalism. I think it's a really good point you bring up. Uh, I think William Lane Craig's biggest objection to presupp, as far as I can remember, is that he brings up is that it's circular reasoning. Uh, I think that I could be wrong on that, so don't take my word for it. But like when someone says precepts just circular reasoning, like how do you kind of like respond to that? And like, uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, now you set me up against Dr. Craig. What's wrong with you, man? No, I'm kidding. I love Dr. You Craig. You can't go against like the infallible Dr. William Lane Craig, can you? <laughs> That's right. That's right. He's the, uh, no, let me stop. Okay. Um, well, uh, Dr. Craig, I believe in the book, uh, Apologetics, Five Views, uh, he says something to the effect that, that presuppositional, <clears throat> pardon, presuppositional argument, the presuppositional argumentation commits a logical howler. Uh, and he goes on to express, you know, well, because it begs the question, it engages in circular reasoning. Um, and Dr. Craig is not the only one who said uh, something to that effect. Dr. Paul Copan, who is a Christian theologian, he's an analytic philosopher, a noted apologist, um, who, by the way, I highly suggest you read his book, uh, Is God a Moral Monster? a little quick commercial for uh, <laughs> for Dr. Copan. Um, but Dr. Copan- the presuppositionalist just like advertising him for him now. That, that's right, that's right. <laughs> um, but- uh, Paul Copan, I, I do respect him as a philosopher, but I, I do think that um, Dr. Craig 
and Dr. Copan should know better. As uh, I know that um, Paul Copan is an analytic philosopher, and in analytic philosophy, it's very important that you define terms and that you're very specific with regards to uh, the terms you use within argumentation and things like that. Um, he should know that in no way, shape, or form did, if he's read the material and understands the position, he should know that Dr. Van Til or Dr. Bonson, uh, they thought that it was philosophically inappropriate <laughs> to engage in the fallacy of begging the question. Something like A is true because A is true. If that's what people think the presuppositional argument or the transcendental argument uh, is trying to do, then they just don't know, you know, what, you know, what the presuppositionalist is saying. I mean, let's give let's give Van Til and Bonson some credit. <laughs> you might disagree with them, but they weren't idiots to miss the fact that, well, wait a minute, you're presupposing the existence of. Uh, yeah, if I'm arguing that God is the necessary precondition for, say, knowledge, then how can I show you an article of knowledge without presupposing it? You see what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so um, respectfully, I think he, uh, Dr. Copan, Dr. Craig, should know better. I don't think that um, uh, when we're dealing with ultimate foundations, everyone engages in circularity. But there is a difference between... Um, the kind of circularity that is fallacious and non-fallacious circularity. Now, I said this to a professor. He's a noted philosopher. I'm not going to mention his name. But I told him when we were having a conversation, and this is off the air, it's not on a show or anything like that, I told him that not all forms of circularity are fallacious. And this guy, is he's quiet. He's soft-spoken. He bursted out in laughter. <laughs> I was like, you mock me. No, no I, I, he was laughing at me. as, And I was like, well, wait a second. Wait a second. Don't you understand that when we're dealing with our ultimate foundation, there's nothing more ultimate than that? So we have to assume it when we're arguing. And he goes, well, yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> I was like, so then why are you disagreeing with me before? That, that there are There is fallacious circular reasoning. You know, the Bible's true because the Bible's true. Mm -hmm. But that's not what presuppositionalists are doing. We're talking about a foundation upon which everything else stands and has its own, it has its meaning and, and cogency. And when you're dealing with one's ultimate foundation, of course, you have to assume it, especially when it's something as all encompassing as God. And we do this in every other field. Look, reason is presupposed in order to demonstrate the reliability of reason. Mm -hmm. The senses are presupposed when we're seeking to demonstrate the reliability of sensation. As Dr. Bonson has said in, in lectures and things like that, he says, of course, we need to use our eyes in order to correct our eyes. Now, when speaking of our ultimate foundation as being the necessary precondition for intelligible experience, of course, I'm presupposing that which I find to be necessary for intelligible experience. How could I reason otherwise? Okay. Now, of course, this is entirely appropriate and non-fallacious and is a far cry from the fallacy of circular reasoning that is often foisted upon uh, the presuppositionalist by respected and, you know, respected philosophers who should know better. They, you know, these are things that it's not a big deal. You know, it's not the fallacy. It's when you're dealing with those foundations, that's just the nature of being a finite creature. You either you have a stopping point, you know, if you don't have a stopping point, then you go ad infinitum. But I know Dr. Craig and Dr. Copan wouldn't believe that. They believe you have foundations, you know, first principles and things like that. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So um, I don't think that it is an accurate um, um, description of a presuppositional approach. And even Van Til, and I'm not even just speaking for myself, Van Til knew about this objection. Okay. Here, let me read you a quote. Uh, this is Van Til on the topic of circularity. He says, to admit one's own presuppositions and to point out the presuppositions of others is therefore to remit, uh, is to maintain that all reasoning in the nature of the case, is circular reasoning yeah. at that ultimate foundational point. The starting point, the method, and the conclusion are always involved in one another. That's Defense of the Faith, page 118. Okay. Uh, he also says, if all things must be seen in God to be truly seen, one could look ever so long elsewhere without ever seeing a fact as it really is. If I must look through a telescope to see a distant star, I cannot first look at the star to see whether there's a telescope through which alone I could see it. Okay. So when we're dealing with the foundation, that which gives meaning to everything else, of course, I need to assume, I need to presuppose it. And so in that sense, it is circular, but it's not necessarily fallaciously circular. Mm. And I think good philosophers should know better, even if they disagree with the methodology. Awesome. Thank you. So now we're going through some more uh, objections. These are just kind of things that we'll put on uh, 
Twitter, you know? So, you know, you never know what you can expect. But it's just like I'm trying to find, like, what are the most common things? Because sure. uh, I want this to be beneficial for someone where if they run into, like, their presuppositionalist, they can run into, like, these common, like, punchlines you can get. Um, here's one from a Christian. It says that Jesus didn't tell his audience uh, to presuppose he was telling the truth. He performed miracles as evidence. Um, so I'm curious what your thoughts on this, probably from a Christian, I would assume. Yeah. Well, the pre again, the question, the foundation of the question presupposes, if I can say, something inaccurate about presuppositionalism. We don't believe that Jesus taught people just presuppose what I'm saying. What? <laughs> a presuppositionalist wouldn't say that. Um, first, Jews, the Jesus primary audience weren't atheists. OK, and if the Bible's true, there are no atheists. Right. They were theists. They were Jews uh, whose whose this is important, whose worldview backdrop was the truth of the Old Testament. Mm. Right. So they were equipped with the appropriate background knowledge to judge the validity of Jesus teaching. Secondly, the statement wrongly understands the presuppositional approach. No presuppositionalist believes, as I said before, Jesus to be teaching just presuppose what I'm saying is true, completely mm. independent of evidence. Right. This is a caricature of of. Of that position. I think Jesus is speaking um, to a people who were sufficiently equipped to interpret his teaching and miracles within the covenantal redemptive context of the Old Testament. And they refused to believe, not because of a lack of evidence, because they had an abundance of it, uh, but rather they, as, as John says, they love darkness rather than light. John 3 19. Mm. You, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So um, I believe miracles are evidence, but miracles are not to be interpreted in a vacuum. That evidence was given to a people who had a broader context that was grounded in the Old Testament of which spoke of Jesus himself. And they should have known that Jesus was, in fact, fulfilling their very scriptures. You see, that's when the Pharisees came up against Jesus. What did Jesus say? He says, you guys search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but it's those scriptures that speak of me. Mm. You see, but because Jesus, as the light of the world, exposed their darkness, they had reason to disbelieve him. They had reason to fight against him. But the reason why they fought against them is because they were not of their father Abraham; they were the father of their children. The, uh, their father, they were the children of their father, the devil, as Jesus says. So I would say that miracles are are good evidence, but they're always given within the backdrop of certain presuppositions, certain worldview contexts, which were shared by both Jesus and most of his audience. Mm. You see about a God who reveals and who is able to, you know, look at Paul, but before. Um, you know, I think it was Festus or something. He says, "Is it so incredible to think that God would raise someone from the dead?" Why, why should it be incredible? I mean, if the, if there is a God, why is it so hard? You see, that presupposition should be something that would allow you to consider what Paul was saying with regards to the evidence of Jesus' resurrection. Mm -hmm. You see? But we don't present these things in isolation. There's no such thing as evidence in a vacuum. That's why people say, well, if Jesus rose from the dead, that proves that he was the son of God. No, it doesn't. The, the independent fact of a man rising from the dead does not prove anything except that someone who was dead is now risen. Mm-hmm. What allows you to infer that he is the Messiah, the son of God, is the broader context of scripture that gives meaning to the fact of the resurrection. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So I think all of these things need to be held together. That's why when we talk about the Christian world, we talk about the system. Everything's connected. You can't just pull apart certain things and, and look at them in a vacuum. That is to presuppose the very thing I said presuppositionalists reject, and that is the assumption of neutrality that we can look at these facts completely independent of these broader contexts and in an unbiased fashion. Mm. Yeah, a lot of great stuff here. Uh, one more thing I want to bring in here, another objection, is kind of like how precept the presuppositional apologetics uh, methodology can always like uh, use the laws of logic. Like one person says that um, this view always takes the, law the laws of logic to be uh, heavily metaphysically embedded in a way that's just simply unnecessary. So I'd be curious if you could just like talk about like how the laws of logic apply to into your presuppositional methodology. Well, I don't know what you mean by metaphysically embedded. That's a, an ambiguous statement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm just. What, what does that What does that mean? Metaphysically yeah, I embedded. So, I think. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's just kind of like a copy and paste from what I saw. But if I was okay. to try to like frame this argument, I think what they're talking about is uh, why not assume like a Descartes? I think, therefore, I am uh, something like that. Like, why think that the laws of logic need some sort of explanation? Like, wouldn't it just be true in all possible universes that A is always A, or A the law of non-contradiction, things like that? Yeah, well, I think we're asking a more deeper question. Yeah, I would say that logic is true in every possible world. But what is the grounding of that? What is logic? What is the metaphysical context that can make sense out of logic? 
You, you see what I'm saying? Your broader metaphysic will affect how you understand logic. And it will eliminate what you're allowed to say or say positively about logic. If you're a pure materialist and say, well, it doesn't matter. Logic just, well, wait a minute. How does something like immaterial laws of logic fit in a purely materialistic universe? You have to bring those things together. You can't just hold any old metaphysic and say that because logic is true in every possible world, we'll just take it for granted as a given. If your very metaphysical theory doesn't even allow for something like uh, logic. If everything is physical, then you're going to have to ground the logic in the physical reality, and there's problems with that. And so our job as apologists who um, argue logic being you know, something that's grounded in, in, the, in God, um, we try to point those things out to show that logic is just not this bare given. You need a metaphysical context out of which to make sense out of that. Now, if you don't want to provide one, you say, well, I just want to assume logic. Well, then fine. If that's valid, I'm just going to assume God, and I guess we're done, right? Mm -hmm. And say, why, why are you allowed to just assume logic? and everyone else can't assume their starting point. You see, if you're going to be in the arguing game and making a case game, then you can't just take things for granted without giving a foundation for those things. Otherwise, you destroy the very point of argumentation, mm -hmm. right? And so um, we're asking that deeper question. Yes, we all think that logic, well, not everyone, some people deny logic, um, but um, if you're saying, well, logic is true in every possible world, that's not really saying anything. I would agree with that. The question is, which account of reality makes sense out of something like the universal conceptual laws of logic? And I would argue atheism doesn't, Hinduism doesn't, Buddhism doesn't, Islam doesn't, Christianity does. And here's why. <laughs> we gotta, gotta add that part. Always the why. Yeah, you always got it because you're, then you're not really saying much. You're just making an assertion. Awesome. Well, thank you. Uh, we're gonna go into a little bit of. Uh, Questions, answers, statements, you know, stuff like that. All kinds of fun stuff. A few questions here in the live chat. Um, first thing here is from Spartan Theology. How's it going, Ethan? He says, uh, when Eli says the Christian worldview explains the transcendent, transcendent, oh my gosh, transcendental facts of reality, how does that work with Christians who disagree on important issues? Uh, yeah, when, uh, well, it depends on what specific issues you're talking about, but even within the Christian worldview, it is perfectly consistent to have disagreements. The Bible even allows us areas of disagreement in non-essential issues. But with regards to essential definitional issues, I think um, definitional issues are those issues that define you in or out of the Christian faith. I would say that all true Christians agree on those points. And those are all those points, those essentials with regards to the nature of God and, and things like that and creation and, and uh, the nature of man. All of those provide, provide us the necessary ingredients to make the form of argumentation that we're making. Mm, awesome. Uh, next thing here is kind of an objection uh, from Deconverted Man, kind of like a statement. And he says, heads I win, also tails I win. Or heads I win, also tails I win, also I win. Uh, so no, precept doesn't work. So kind of like a statement uh, yeah. against precept. Well, the what he's complaining about is the assertion that Christianity is true by the impossibility of the contrary. Heads I win, yes. Tails I win, yes. That's right. That's the nature of a transcendental argument. Hmm. My my view is true by the impossibility of the contrary. Deny my view, and I will show you how you must assume my view even to deny it. If you have a problem with transcendental arguments, that's not my problem, and that doesn't. It, it's, you're just people are upset. Well, why does Christianity have to present such an ironclad? It's impossible. That's right. It's impossible to win against the Christian worldview because it's the only worldview that provides the necessary preconditions. People might not like that, but heads I win, also tails I win, also I win. Uh, that really doesn't say much. Um, it just tells us his psychological state. He doesn't like the fact that Christianity makes such strong claims. Hmm. Uh, question here from JMD Apologetics. John Dunphy says, would Eli be willing to debate this topic with me? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, actually, I do take debates very seriously, but because I'm I'm often very busy and I don't have a lot of time to prep, I haven't been taking debates lately. I've actually had to turn down a couple of debates. So um, not anytime soon, but as soon as my schedule opens up, I, I would be willing to engage some folks. <laughs> well, John's a pretty cool dude. Um, so I think something that we brought up a lot here is this idea there's a lot of like misconceptions about precept like there can be. So if you could point someone to like maybe like a book or a debate or a lecture to kind of like understand like what, what the properly understood methodology of presuppositional apologetics is, like where would you point someone to go? Yeah, well, you first have to differentiate the different flavors of presuppositionalism because there are some different emphases in folks like, pardon, in folks like um, Dr. James Anderson, John Frame, uh, Greg Bonson, Van Til, um, and Scott Oliphant. Um, but you would do well to look at their works and see what is the major thrust of what they're trying to say. There might be different applications, but what is the major thrust of presuppositional thought, you know, and um, read up, read carefully. Don't just 
you know, I know it's hard because there's a lot of, I mean, there's so much to read. You can, you can read forever, but <laughs> yeah. try to really take seriously what Van Til is saying and what Bonson is saying and seeing what are they trying to say? Let me put myself in their shoes and see what is it they're getting at. And I think when you read their work and I, I'm, I tend to be a big Bonson fan, you know, um, I tend to be more Bonsonian than Framian or whatever, but, um, you know, read a Bonson carefully, you know, not necessarily to critique and to criticize, but to understand. And at the end of the day, if you disagree, at least you understand the position clearly enough. But really, um, give them the benefit of the doubt. These guys weren't perfect, of course. But um, the easy, off-the-cuff objections that might pop in your mind, chances are they address it. Um, because, you know, they weren't dumb, you know. Yeah, and you might later think that they didn't answer your objections sufficiently. But at least take the time to understand the work. Read through it a little bit. Um, listen to folks who do a, a presuppositional apologetics well and see if you can pick up on some of the themes that you picked up in your reading. So it does take a little work, but I suppose that's the same with everything, right? Whether you're not, if you're not a presuppositionalist, um, you know, you're going to have to do the same thing with uh, a William Lane Craig. Am I, am I understanding the cosmological argument? Are my objections something that's been addressed in Dr. Craig's work? These are the, this is the, just the hard work of doing these sorts of things. Or you can just be lazy and stand against the fence and throw stones from far away and say, I don't like it because of this. And you're not really engage, you know, uh, with the specifics, which unfortunately some people do. Mm. Uh, one more question here from Lightning Apologetics. It says, does Eli see as many extravagant objections against precept as he does other methods of apologetics? Hmm. Let me see if I understand that question. Does Eli see as many extravagant objections against precept as he does other methods of apologetics? Um. Well, extravagant is very, very subjective, but I'm not sure. I think the mo I think people get more creative when they're objecting to presuppositionalism because presuppositionalism is more all-encompassing. Mm -hmm. Whereas you're just arguing a classical approach, you're arguing like bits by bits. Like you'll stay for a while on the cosmological, or maybe you come up with a you know a contrary theory about what might have happened to Jesus. You know those are fun, um, but then you then you get weird things against the transcendental argument, known as the Christianity objection. Now, how extravagant is that? I don't I don't know if there's any objection like that for classical and evidential arguments. The Christianity objection is an attempt to demonstrate that the Christian worldview, it does not provide the necessary preconditions for intelligible experience because perhaps there is this other worldview that is literally the same as the Christian worldview in every way, except that instead of God being a trinity, he's a quadrinity. <laughs> and so they come up with these different kind of models of, you know, different versions of almost Christianity to kind of debunk the transcendental argument. So I would say, I would say, no, I, I, I think I've seen more extravagant arguments against the pre-supper, but I could be wrong. I mean, I haven't read all, everything out there. So you haven't read like every book in the entire world yet. No, I keep, people keep asking me, have I read all of these books? And I'm like, books, who are those? I don't know. I don't even know whose <laughs> books those are. They're There's my nobody. books. I've read I've read a lot. I've read little bits of most of them, but I haven't read all of them. <laughs> There's so many books to read. It's sad that we only have um, so little time to read. But that's like that's right. Um, so, any last like last thoughts, things we didn't bring up that you want to bring up before we end things here, Eli? Well, um, I, I guess for fellow Christians who are against the fence. I, I really hope that people become acquainted with a presuppositional approach from presuppositionalists explaining themselves as opposed to getting their sources from opponents, right? Uh, because again, it doesn't help when you have someone who's really, you know, surfacey objections, but that's your only access point. You, you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And do a little more than simply watch videos, right? Pick up a pre pick up a book by a presuppositionalist, read it. You know, even if you disagree, you're going to find stuff that's going to help you because this is one of the big things that's, that's, um, you know, that's important to me is that if people watch my show, I've, I've interviewed all sorts of apologists from different, um, apologetic methodologies. I've had Dr. Gary Habermas on, I've had Frank Turek on, um, and I've had Scott Oliphant on Dr. James Anderson on. Um, so I like to get the, the, the full spectrum evidentialists and classicalists have a lot to offer and they complement what is lacking in the presuppositional school. Mm -hmm. See, presuppositionalists tend to be worldview thinkers. And so we see things in their broad overview, which I think is, is important. It's more important, I think, than the specifics because it interprets the specifics. However, when we're done speaking about those broad worldview issues, and then someone just says, all right, well then give me some specifics. 
And then what do they do? They, you know, they, they point you to some book written by some evidentialist or something like that, you know? So evidentialisms and classicalists focus on the specifics of like cosmological, teleological, axiological, moral type arguments. Those are helpful in the presuppositional arsenal, because as I said before, presuppositional apologetics does not necessitate that you reject those arguments. If you think those arguments are logically sound, then all you do as a presuppositionalist is take those arguments and use them within the broader context of a consistent Christian worldview or a presuppositional framework. And so they have use. So I would hope that people read the material a little bit more carefully instead of just watching a bunch of YouTube videos and thinking they've got it, they've got it down. Because your objections, you know, someone probably responded to it. And in many cases, the presuppositional objections are pretty bad. There's some good ones. But most of them are pretty bad. And, you know, usually people are very self-congratulatory, like, oh, yeah, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, well, who made God? You know, it's like, <laughs> uh, oh, my goodness. Argument. that's it. Who made God? I mean, but but you see a lot of the objections against presuppositional methodology sounds like that. And it just shows um, an irresponsibility with handling kind of the source material. And that's not the case. You have people like Dr. Howe, Dr. Richard Howe, who is um, a critic of presuppositionalism. And he's read, he's read, and um, I disagree with him, but at least he's taken some time to kind of uh, plow through the material, right? And yeah. formulate a response. And so things like that, I think, produce helpful and fruitful interaction between uh, people from different camps. Yeah, and I would encourage everyone, um, not just with the presuppositional methodology, but with really any argument, like before you can run around pronouncing that you've debunked an argument, really take a minute to seriously dive into the literature, because there's some really smart people that have defended a lot of positions that you probably disagree with. Um, but Eli, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed this conversation. I feel like uh, for everyone listening, we've really gained a grasp more of what precept really is. I really appreciate uh, how friendly you are in defending precept. Like I feel like sometimes preceptors can get this reputation of being like stern and I don't know, but like <laughs> I mean, I, I gotta put I gotta put I gotta put my mean presupposition. <laughs> I love the reaction. I love it. There it That's is. what I do. So I, inter I intimidate people. I take it back. I take <laughs> I'm about back. to. I'm about to give you a transcendental argument. Get ready. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, well, it's been so much fun. I encourage everyone. Uh, if you're listening, subscribe to Revealed Apologetics. It's out via podcast and YouTube. There's a link in, down below to subscribe to Revealed Apologetics. Great channel from a presuppositional view, with which also includes a lot of people from different the different uh, backgrounds. Frank Turek, Gary Habermas, all these great people you're talking about. Um, and that's really it. I'd encourage everyone, if you're new here to Hearing Apologetics, you were just here to see this amazing guy named Eli Ayala. Uh, be sure to subscribe. You can leave a like. All that stuff, always appreciated. And you can support the show on patreon.com slash Hearing Apologetics. Eli, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure.